Hi, and welcome to a new edition of the OPC Foundation podcast, the home of industrial interoperability. My name is Peter Seberg, and I'm your host. Today, we'll be talking to Jim Luth, who is a system architect in process automation R&D with Schneider Electric and CTO of the OPC Foundation. We will be talking about nothing less than the past and also the future of OPC UA. Uh, Jim will talk about his role as OPC Foundation CTO, about OPC UA revisions, about versions, about MQTT, about big data and where he sees OPC UA to become adopted. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining. How are you? Hi, Peter. I'm fine. Jim, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Where are you from? What's your role at Schneider Electric? And what's your role at the OPC Foundation? And maybe what have you been doing before you got to work at either place? Sure. So I'm currently a system architect at Schneider Electric. And although most system architects work largely on products, I'm more focused on standards and OPC being one of the big standards that I participate in, although there are other standards that I that I also participate in. And my role at the OPC Foundation is I'm currently the chairman of the OPC UA Working Group. I'm a member of the Technical Advisory Council and the Technical Control Board, in addition, of course, to my title as, as CTO. My career started in the 70s. It's been entirely focused on automation first with General Motors, and then later for Taylor Instruments, which is now ABB, then for the Foxborough Company, which became Invencents, and then Schneider Electric. I did a bunch of small startups. I worked for Iconics, which is now part of Mitsubishi Electric. And along the way, focused mostly on software, I taught myself object-oriented programming and became a freelance consultant, bringing object-oriented programming into many different organizations. And uh, you'll actually see a lot of object-oriented concepts in OPC UA somewhat based upon that background. Sounds great. So how does one get the title of a CTO? Well, yeah, that's an interesting one. And it is really very much a title. The, the title is bestowed on you by the board of directors of the OPC Foundation. And uh, essentially, I, I gained that title by being a consistent volunteer over many, many years. Since 1997, I've been active in working groups and then sharing the working groups and writing sample code and driving the vision forward for the foundation. And that continues to today. You know, part of the work is getting other volunteers to, to help and do the work. And again, I certainly don't do it alone, although I've been called by others the father of OPC UA for my role in bringing this all together. That's another great title then, of course, in addition to being a CTO. And uh, we're very honored to have you with us today for that purpose. So if I calculate it, Ryan, so say you, you've been the chair since 1997. So that's what, 23? And maybe there has been some work before that. So at least 23 years of work, I guess. OPC UA now being up to version 1.04, if I'm correct. When are we going to see version 2.0? Well, hopefully never, actually. One of the things that we've done with OPC UA is tried to make it so we wouldn't have any breaking changes. 
And the day we decide we're going to do a 2.0 by our own rules, that would mean there's a discontinuity and a breaking change between version one and version two. And in the 17 years of OPCUA, we haven't actually had any of those kind of breaking changes. And so we work on incremental changes. We work on different underlying protocols or security enhancements or features. But we do this all in a way that the uh, the oldest versions of version one of OPC UA are, can connect to the version 104 and vice versa. And except for the difference in the functionality, they, they all work correctly. Right. So I guess that maybe we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. But as you say, so those companies that kind of jumped on the bandwagon at the very beginning, so they started using then, I assume, 1.0, they can still be using exactly that first implementation today with, as you said, the exception of maybe additional features that have come along since then. That's that's right. And so, although we, of course, hope that our vendors, uh, you know, incrementally improve their products and, and adopt the newer versions, they can do so on their own schedule without being impacted by, oh, if you don't make this fix now, next month, nothing's going to work and you can't work with new things. So we've never hit those kind of walls with OPC UAs. It's made it very acceptable in the marketplace. The last thing vendors want to do is beyond some hamster wheel trying to keep up with changes for the sake of change. So version 1.xx will never be finished? Yeah, that's my plan, or at least certainly not until I retire. <laughs> you know, UA was really designed in a layered way, uh, knowing that technology would change, and we wanted to do it in a way and produce the specs in a way that we could adopt newer underlying technologies without breaking the outer design of the thing. And we've been, you know, quite successful with that. I mean, a good example is, you know, security algorithms we knew from the get-go, we'd have to put them into the spec, but we know that security algorithms get broken over time. Um, and so we purposely built in the way to incrementally enhance security algorithms and deprecate old ones uh, without breaking anything. And then, you know, feature-wise, as an example, in version 104, we added the publish-subscribe communication pattern to augment the long-standing request-response pattern that was in UA. And again, those kind of features stand side-by-side -side with the original functionality. And again, the, the older products can still use client-server. Of course, they can't use publish-subscribe until they modify the code, but this allows a nice, smooth path to the future. And, you know, and over time, of course, we also add different communication protocols to that underlie OPC UA. Of course, the basis of the client-server work is simply based on TCP, which is, of course, the most well-known internet protocol. But with publish-subscribe, we're adding UDP. Raw Ethernet is being added along the way. And the support of message brokers, AMQP and MQTT, has become important. And that's all part of the publish-subscribe pattern. This concept of developing like close to, you know, 20 years soon and maybe yet another 10 years, who you know, within and staying within version 1.xx, is that a untypical concept or would you say 
that most of our listeners, or me including as well, would know one or the other example. I don't know. I mean, if you talk about Windows, we talk about PCs, notebooks. If we talk Android, about our smartphones, is that atypical? Or do we knowingly or unknowingly have that same concept in other areas around us? Yeah, in, in most other areas, especially in technology, the goal of being the fastest or the newest or the shiniest outweighs the the long-term compatibility. In the automation world, we've learned that that isn't the case. And it's one it's one of the ways that our industry is different than much of the world. And yet, as I said, we've done a pretty good job of being able to serve both ends of those spectrum, one being compatible with the old, but by the same token, being able to adapt to new technologies as they come along. But it is a pretty unusual thing, and I can't think of other specs in the automation world that have been uh, as adept at, at those kind of changes. So major uh, UA versions have been 1.03, 104, 105, I understand. And how about the concept of amendments being published in between? Can you please explain? Sure. So, so we, um, we've been on a cycle typically of about every three years releasing a major version, which to us, of course, is not the major version because that would mean a breaking change, but going from 103 to 104 to 105. And we've been doing this pretty much following the IEC rules for updating specs. And this involves in between those major publications, we publish two other types of documents. Uh, one is amendments, and that's where we add new functionality. And the other one is errata, where we make corrections for mistakes in the specification itself. And those documents, per the IEC rules, are, are published as, as separate physical documents. And so the original specs are, are not touched. After living with the amendment process now for a few years and the errata process, we're actually in 105. We're going to be changing that procedure and we're going to drop the errata and amendment documents. And instead, we'll be releasing point releases or subpoint releases to the physical documents themselves as they need be. So you'll see a 105.1 and 105.2.3.4 in order to implement those same changes along the way. We're not changing the functionality we're, we're implementing. We're not changing the speed that we're releasing those changes. We're just using a different vehicle to do that. And uh, we think this will be uh, smoother for our, our users. And uh, the, the original amendment concept and the RATA concept was it's a throwback to the days of paid paper specifications where you would pay the IEC and they would send you a nice binder with their spec in it. And that's that's what you paid for. And then you would get the amendments and the RATA for free as a download. Mm -hmm. But in our world, all the specs are free right. and they're all instantly available now on the Internet. And so we want to make it basically make the documents more updatable and more live like you would expect in 2020. Very good. At the beginning, you mentioned, so you work as a system architect and you work on standards and OBC UA is one, if not maybe the most important, but other standards do exist, which you implicitly suggested. Now, one I've got a question about is MQTT. Is MQTT a big competitor to OBC UA in the industrial Internet of Things, I IoT? Well, well, sure it is. And, and again, I think it's it's one of those cases where it's a competitor and it's also, you know, a piece of OPC UA. As I said, in PubSub, we, we support the MQTT protocol 
And we use that as a viable way to move the physical bytes from one point to another. But at the same time, MQTT as a, as a raw technology in the specification is also used to move the data outside of the scope of OPC UA. And uh, this is nothing new. Back in the day when OPC UA client server was coming out, it was the heyday of, of web services. And so a lot of client server work, we would go say, you should be using OPC UA. And they say, well, no, look, I can write web services. They're really easy. You know, Microsoft and, and others provide all the tools for that. It's really simple. And it's true. It can be simple to use some of those other standards in a sense to do something if you're if your job is to just to get it done and to be able to move data from one point to another. But OPC UA is, is way more than the protocol for moving data. And once you realize that you're better off with a whole ecosystem that includes the data, the metadata, the security algorithms, the interoperability testing, the compliance testing, and so forth, as a long-term vehicle for something you're going to build into a product and live with for years and years, using OPC UA is a much smarter way to, to do that, even if you decide you do want to move the data with MQTT. And it turns out these point-to-point, as I like to call them, point-to-point connections where some programmer just wrote both sides of it and he taps himself on the, pats himself on the back because he successfully moved the data that he was asked to is missing that bigger context. and. As we move more and more into, into cloud systems and big data, the context is equally now as important as the data itself. And uh, in those cases, losing the metadata that surrounds the data in UA that we're able to deal with is crazy. And uh, at some point, it's going to become more and more important to have that context. Right. So you mentioned how context is particularly important in big data scenarios. Can you share with our listeners a big data example and what you exactly would mean by context? Well, well sure. Let's say I was able to have services and, and temperature sensors all around the world measuring temperature. And I decide to put a bunch of MQTT publishers out there and they and they send out the temperatures every minute or every hour or whatever it is, all around the world. And I gather a bunch of temperatures. So I, in the cloud now, I have a bunch of numbers that represent temperatures. Well, that's great. But in context or without the context, what am I going to do with that data? And the context could be as simply as simple as the units. If I don't know whether the temperature is degree C or degrees F, the values themselves are actually useless. And even if I knew that, if I don't have any idea of the physical location, the geolocation of the temperature, or whether I'm measuring the temperature under the sea or in the air or of a device or a tank or something else, again, what good is the data itself? So you could argue, you know, if I'm making a point-to-point connection, I know exactly what my application is. I could provide just the, the right metadata to provide it into the cloud. But one of the big advantages of the big data analysis stuff is tying together information in ways that the original people didn't think of. And that's a lot of the value that's being gained from big data is correlation of data sets that seemingly would have no direct correlations. And so if I don't know what those correlations might be like, I don't even know which metadata that I would absolutely need and which ones I don't. And so the the idea of capturing and maintaining all of that context, everything that you can, is going to be super, super important as time goes on. And again, typically when the point-to-point solutions are written, somebody says, you just have to move this data here, and, and most of that 
information is lost. So does that mean that uh, OPC way would need to be adopted everywhere in sensors, in factories, but also in cars, buildings, in the cloud, so I can, I can have full data in context, as you just explained, everywhere? Well, that's, that's often the way, the way it can be looked at. If, you, if you're someone like me that works with almost exclusively OPC UA, it's like, it's like having a hammer walking around and realizing everything looks like a nail. <laughs> but, but the reality is there are places and times where, where OPC UA as a technology, as the whole as we know it today, that is the metadata plus the data, the real-time aspect of moving that data in real time and so forth, isn't necessarily the most appropriate. And so one of the things that we, we're starting to try to figure out now is how to move the richness of the OPC UA information model in ways that don't really conform to the current OPC UA standards as far as the underlying protocols and the movement of data. And over time, I think we'll see that even more. And some examples of where we're doing this outside of OPC UA, currently the OPC Foundation has a joint working group for what's called Cloud Library. And again, its purpose is to be able to publish OPC UA information models in the cloud for ease of reuse. And again, having a place to go potentially to say, okay, this data came from OPC UA somewhere and it's using this information model. And now without going back to that location of the data, I can go to the cloud to get the context of the information model and the metadata surrounding it. So that's one example of how we're trying to move that information sort of outside of the normal space for OPC UA and OPC UA clients and servers and publishers and subscribers. Another example is with FLC, which is OPC's field level communications initiative. You know, we're working on creating what ultimately will be a, the Uber replacement field bus for factory and process automation. And as is true of all of the existing field bus technologies, The ability to do offline engineering of devices and systems is very important. And again, we have to have a way to effectively configure what will be an OPC UA system without actually having the OPC system available. And for this, we're using another spec, another technology called Automation ML, which was directly built for the purpose of exchanging engineering data among tools, not among live systems. So we're working on effectively implementing OPC UA information models in an alternate tool that is Automation ML. Another example, we have a group working on semantic validation. And this is the idea that right now, a lot of what we write down that has to be tested in our compliance tests is written in English in a spec. It says, you shall do this. You know, when you press the lever here, it shall jump five feet or whatever. And the goal here is to be able to have a way to validate these things in a more precise way than English allows. And, and again, this has to do with validating partly the information model and the constructs in the information model. And so that group, one of the things that they did was they converted the UA information model to the web ontology language. And they did this in order to make use of other tools available in that environment, in this case, Shackle, which is a shapes constraint language. And this allows them to do advanced processing of the information model in a way to do validation. And again, this was a case where OPC UA's information model didn't have the necessary tools to do this. So it made sense to be able to convert this to a different form. 
And the last example I'll, I'll give for this is in the industry 4.0, there's a concept called asset administration shell. And again, this, this similarly wraps a concept and an information model around anything and everything that could be an asset. And again, there's a lot of the asset work that they're doing. They've tied this to runtime OPC UA information models, but they also, much like our FLC example, they need this information available in a static offline form. And again, here, it'll be important to maintain the fidelity of the information model as it moves from an offline representation to an online representation in OPC UA. So those are some examples of those types of things where we're using OPC UA and we need to connect to OPC UA in some way, but we don't have OPC UA as the whole in all places. Thank you for sharing this, uh, I should say, very down-to-earth, realistic perspective, which is new for me and maybe for one or the other listener as well. Final question, is there any development you've experienced lately, any activity that may come up, any final thought that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, yeah, I think, you know, in keeping with my, my last comments, the idea that as we extend OPC UA, and like I said, we've gone down to the field level now, and we find things that OPC UA is really good at and other places where we have to reach out to other technologies. And of course, we're finding the same as we go up to the cloud. There's a lot of important concepts in OPC UA that need to be maintained and are useful, but we're constantly challenged to find different ways to express it. And I think over time, we'll be better off if we don't look at everything as a nail as we walk around with our hammer and we expand what we think about as being OPC UA to embrace other technologies and other representations. Thank you very much. Uh, you referred to FLC once or twice. Those listeners that may want to learn more about FLC, you can listen, I believe it's like two or three episodes back to an interview with Peter Lutz that we did on that topic. Jim, thank you very much for sharing your ins and outs as the father of OPC UA, as you mentioned at the beginning, regarding the past, but also your view on the future of OPC UA. If you, dear listener, want to learn more about OPC UA, the specifications, other pieces of the OPC UA technology, or about the OPC Foundation, uh, you may want to listen to any of the other preceding OPC Foundation podcast editions, or you can visit the website at uh, opcfoundation.org. If you have a proposal for topics or interested in appearing on the OPC Foundation podcast, maybe you want to join one or the other OPC UA companion specification working group, or maybe you want to become a member of the OPC Foundation or otherwise, please mail the OPC Foundation at office at opcfoundation.org. We'll put both the website URLs and the mail address in the podcast notes. It was great to have you with us today. If you liked what you heard, give us a thumbs up, spread the news, and looking forward to have you with us again. And Jim, thank you very much for having been my special guest today. Thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.